team very much. Just tremendously powerful lyrics already. Our kids are with us today, so I have a question. Is there uh, one of our young people here who would be wearing either a Fitbit or something like that? I'm not going to embarrass you or ask you a question. I won't have you come up here. I just want to kind of see where you are. Who would have one of those on among our kids? If you've got something like a Fitbit or something that kind of tracks your progress, monitors your fitness, just hold your hand up, would you? Maybe hold your, ha- your arm up with that on there. Do I see anybody at all? There's one there. Okay, good. Anybody else? Okay, so here's what he would say, and we would agree with him, that what that does is it kind of tracks your level of fitness. It indicates um, how you're doing in that area, or your lack of how you're doing in that area, right? Well, here's what it doesn't do, and we don't like this. It doesn't make us fit. A Fitbit doesn't make you fit. If you bought it for that reason, you're disappointed. You You don't put it on and sit on the couch with a remote and think, man, this thing's working awesome. I'm feeling so much better already. doesn't happen. A Fitbit really just indicates, to some degree, either how fit you are or how fit you're not. It just simply tells you something about your fitness. God is much more gracious than those who make a Fitbit. He has given us something that doesn't only indicate our fitness. His tool by which uh, that he's given us to indicate fitness, it also produces fitness. Did you know that? So what tool is that, Todd? Let's find out together. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Will you open your Bibles to that chapter, please? Kids and adults, parents, all of us. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 is the is the chapter that answers that question. What is the tool that God has given us that not only indicates fitness, but actually produces it? It's in these 12 verses, all right? 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. I want to do two things today. I want to explore the meaning of these 12 verses. Excuse me, I want to examine the meaning of these 12 verses and then explore the application. So that's kind of our roadmap today. We'll go to our lab to examine the meaning. We'll mark our Bibles. This will help the kids who are here to kind of endure the sermon, perhaps. All right? We'll get our pens out and we'll practice together. We'll take some Q&A as well. But our goal is to understand what is it that indicates spiritual fitness. The word in the text is the word worthiness. And then does this also produce it? The answer is yes. We're going to find out what that is. This is the beginning message in a series called While We Wait. Okay, uh, It's a seven or eight week series through the book of 2 Thessalonians. And I think it's just naturally fitting that we go to this book. I really appreciate the way the Lord kind of guides us in our series through the Bible. This is a letter written by Paul to a church in Thessalonica. And it really centers around how to live responsibly in light of the coming of Jesus Christ. And so our series, as you've seen on the slide before, and some weeks ahead of time, is called While We Wait, Exhortations from Second Thessalonians. And it makes sense. We just come out of a summer looking at seven churches, historical, actual churches, that were given instructions about what to do in light of the apocalypse or revealing of Jesus Christ that was soon to come. So here's another one of those churches 
few decades earlier, but still the same thought. In light of the coming of Christ or his revealing or apocalypse, how does the church live? What are we to do and how are we to be responsible with this faith that we've been given? This is all in this series now through 2 Thessalonians in these three simple chapters. So let's this morning, let's answer the question. In light of Christ's coming, what is it that then produces the kind of fitness in us for that coming? And does this same tool also indicate how fit we are? The answer is yes. It's found in the 12 verses. What do you say we go to our lab and let's examine this meaning in these 12 verses? So if you have your Bibles, hopefully you do. Uh, Look with me at these 12 verses. It will be a little hard to read, by the way. On the projector up here, I did the best I could to get all 12 verses kind of in view. But you have your Bibles, either digital or hard copy. You can follow along. If you have a digital Bible and you can highlight, please do that. If you have different colored pens, it'll help you. Hey, kids, follow with me. You have a handout there that was given to you when you came in, designed just for the kids. I'd encourage you to use that. And let me kind of show you how you can kind of mark in your Bible and walk through it to kind of gather the meaning of a text, all right? So let's read together, 2 Thessalonians 1. Before we read, let me just show you two words that I think are key to the chapter. We're going to see how they fit. But circle the word worthy in verse 5. Would you do that? And then the word worthy in verse 11. All right? Just circle those two words. We'll go back and read the chapter, make some notes, and we'll understand and examine the meaning of this. The Bible says, Paul and Silvanus and Timothy. Silvanus is another name for Silas. So Paul and Silas and Timothy, they're writing this. It's to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice that in this verse... And in verse 2, he says, grace to you and peace from, here's a repetition, God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Usually in the Bible, repetition is done for emphasis sake. So what is Paul saying here? What is Silas and Timothy? What are they saying? This is a letter from God. This is important. This is inspired scripture. It bears the marks of authenticity as a letter from God. And he says in this letter, verse 3, Notice there's one thing he does in verse 3. He says we ought always to give thanks to God. So they first of all give thanks to God. We'll come back to why in a minute. He says in verse 4, they boast about you in the churches of God. So first of all, there's two things we see that Paul, Silas, Timothy say. They're giving thanks to God and they're boasting to the churches of God. Why are they giving thanks to God? It says here, and you can follow with me here, because your faith is growing Here's an adverb describing that faith abundantly. They're growing. It's growing abundantly. And then their love for one another is increasing. So two reasons that Paul and Silas and Timothy are giving thanks to God. What are they? Their faith is growing and their love is increasing. Now watch this. Kids, look at me. Adults, look at me. That's a vertical and a horizontal reason for thanks. So your elders, we we follow suit in this. We would say, we give thanks to God for you when we say at least two things. Your faith is growing. That's your trust in God, your belief in in what he says. When that grows, we give thanks to God for you. And your love for each other, that's a horizontal aspect. So when, when there's a vertical deepening and a horizontal increase, leaders of the church should give thanks for the church. We give thanks to God for you. This is what Paul says here that he did about the Thessalonians. 
then he says that that very thing then makes him boast about them. See that? He says, therefore, we boast about you in the churches of God. So the church at Thessalonica must have become some kind of model church. In what way? Here's what I think is a really interesting caveat, a really good nugget. Watch this. He boasts about them, not that they increased in love and deepened in faith only, but that they did that, watch this, steadfastness in the faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions you are enduring. So here's this word faith, steadfastness. What Paul is saying is this. We give thanks to God for what we see in you. We boast about this to other churches, but here's why we can do that. Because you're doing that when it's very difficult to do. Does that make sense? Now, why was it difficult for them to do that? Write this in your margins, Acts 17. If you'll read that chapter, the first few verses especially, kids, this would be a good thing to do today perhaps. Even while I'm preaching, you could read those first few verses. When Paul first visited Thessalonica, some uh, Greeks got saved, some women got saved, but the Jews did not like what he was doing, and they ran him out of town. Because they couldn't get him, they had then attacked one of his followers. His name was Jason. And they really persecuted Jason. The sense of this text is, this was written, by the way, a little after that. The sense of the text is then, what happened in Paul's first visit continued even after he left. Paul eventually landed in Corinth. Timothy was sent back, I believe, to Thessalonica. Um, Silas, perhaps... um, Somewhere else, I forget where. But they eventually all met back in Corinth in Acts 18. And I think this is where the reports of this church came back. And Paul writes and he says to them, you know what? What happened when I was there with Jason, it must have continued. Timothy says it's continuing. And you have not quit loving each other. You have not quit trusting God. And so we boast about you. Watch this church, listen. Paul, and I hope I can say this correctly. I think I can based on this chapter for sure, okay? Paul does not say, hey, you're trusting God and loving each other. And and you know what? It never cost you anything. I'm thankful for that. I'm boasting about you. He doesn't say that. That is to be expected. Paul says, I'm thankful to God for you. And I'm boasting about you to other churches because you did what was expected when it was very difficult. When it cost you to wear the name of Christ. When there were consequences to your calling. You did not give up. What does he say next? Watch this. He calls this, by the way, endurance. See that in verse 4? Kind of bold that. Circle that. Because this is the key word. He says, this is the evidence. Put a square around that word. What is it evidence of? It's evidence of the righteous judgment of God. So when you endure... Very difficult consequences for wearing Christ's name. And in the middle of those, you continue to love your spiritual family and trust God. That is evident that God has righteously judged you. What's the next phrase? That you may be considered, say it with me, worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Let me explain this verse to you. What is evidence that God has has passed a righteous sentence? What is evidence that God has judged you correctly as being worthy of the kingdom? It's when you endure. 
Now, you could say, well, what, is that what evidence refers to? Does evidence refer to enduring? You can draw a line back there. Or does evidence refer to all of this in four and five, uh, three and four? Is it this idea that you, you grow in your faith, you increase in your love, and all of that shows you belong to God? I would go with the former. I think the word evidence most relates to the specific fact that they are loving and trusting in the middle of difficult circumstances. Why? Look at the last word of this verse. He says, this is the evidence. Endurance is the evidence that God has judged you righteously. He's, he's uh, identified you correctly. Watch this. Because in this, he, he's showing that you are worthy of his kingdom, for this is why you are suffering. I think the evidence ties to the word suffering here and the word enduring in verse 4. In other words, enduring difficulty because of your identity is one of the ways, watch this church, listen, that God righteously and justly shows who you really are. Are you saying, Todd, that God would send difficult things in my life for me to showcase His work? I am. And when God does that, He is just and righteous. Are you listening to me? God is not to be blamed for fault or wrongdoing when he sends difficulties because what he's doing is he's showing the world who you really belong to. So God is righteous in doing this. He says that this is how we're considered or known as worthy. Now that's an interesting phrase. It does not mean, follow me, it does not mean deserving. It doesn't mean that um, uh, you know, you're deserving of this or this makes you deserving. It'd be similar to this. If I had someone really important come into my house, let's say the president, a very important person, someone that we want to show respect to, maybe the Queen of England, uh, maybe a state dignitary, um, maybe it's someone in your family who's a, a relative has been gone for years. You can think of any scenario. Someone really important coming to see you. And so you get your house ready. You get yourself ready. You get your family ready. Why? Because you want to show that you are deserving of them coming. No, you get yourself, your family ready because they deserve it. Does that make sense? So you don't do it so that they will come. You do it because they are coming. This is the point here. God is getting us ready for Christ's coming. Not because we deserve it, because He is deserving. He's getting us fit. Watch this. He's getting us fit for the kingdom. And how does He do that? By bringing things into our life that we must endure. Because endurance is God's Fitbit. But it's way better than what he's wearing. You know why? Because it not only indicates your fitness, it actually produces it. That's why endurance is the evidence that God has judged you righteously. You belong to him. And so he's allowing and sending these things to show the world your true identity. Is that difficult? We could all say with a resounding what? Yes. Don't you, you just go ahead and relax. It's okay to admit that. 
That's very difficult. And at times, does it seem unfair? Could someone just be honest and say, it sure does. But it's not unfair, nor is it unjust. Watch this, though. It does, though, um, seem in the moment not to be completely uh, vindicating. Why is that? Because God's timetable is such that he vindicates his children when Christ comes. Did you know that? I hope that you're hearing this because I want to lay some hard truth on you. God has never promised us early vindication. TV has. Popular Christian books do. Celebrity pastors might. But God has never promised you early vindication. Let's read the text. He says, This is just that God would prove your identity and consider you worthy of this kind of treatment. It's righteous. This is why you're suffering because it's, way, it's the way He shows what you're made of. Since indeed God considers it just. In other words, He's saying, If this is just, then the other side is just as well. If God is just to identify you in this way, watch this. It is also just for God to repay with affliction. Those who afflict you. Okay, now we're, like, now we're talking our language. Hey, I like that, God. You know, I, I can live with what you're doing in my life. But if you're going to get them back, I'm liking that language. Look what he says, though. He's going to repay. Notice these two R words. Repay with affliction those who afflict you. And he's going to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. I think that's an indication of Acts 17 again. Paul was afflicted, ran, escaped. They continued to endure it. But none of this happens until the Lord Jesus is revealed. There's the word apocalypse. Until he's revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. When are you promised vindication? When Jesus comes. Now, could it happen earlier in moments or segments or in seasons or in snapshots? Possibly. And would we all admit there are times, there are lulls in our Christian life where things aren't as difficult? Sure. But there is no ultimate final vindication, Paul says, until Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. Watch the next few phrases. This is almost like a, a parenthetical phrase, verses 6 through 10. In fact, you ought to kind of bracket them off. Because they kind of describe, there's a description of Christ coming between the two words worthy. In other words, God is showing you to be worthy. He's making you fit. He's going to keep doing that until this occurs, the coming of Christ. He'll come in flaming fire, verse 8 says, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They'll suffer punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. Look at this next phrase, when He comes on that day. Kids, parents, adults, take that phrase in verse 10, connected to when He's revealed from heaven. Same idea. When He comes, when He's revealed... Inflaming fire, vengeance on those who don't believe, uh, relief for those who do. When God does that, the Bible says here, he'll be glorified in his saints and marveled at among all who have believed. Now, I'm not going to get into timing issues here, but I will say this. This seems to connect the judgment of God on those who don't believe with the coming of God for those who believe. So you can make up your own mind. The round table was last week. I don't want to go into all that again, except to say this. 
Paul seems to hear say, at least in some general terms, these are things that happen, if not together, at least closely. He's saying to these believers, hang on until this day when God judges those who are afflicting you and rescues you. He'll be glorified in the saints, marvel at among all who believed. Because our testimony to you was believed. What was that testimony? It was the word about Jesus. Who he was and what he's done. And that he's coming back. So here's what he's saying. This difficult circumstance you're in, in which you are obeying the Lord, increasing in love and growing in faith, is actually evidence that you belong to God. He's enabling you to endure it because you haven't quit. Continue to endure because one day Christ will make all things right. Hang on till that day. And then he says this, watch. To this end, we always pray for you. Now that's interesting. What is the end that Paul prays for? Is it what he mentions next? Or is it something he's already mentioned? I think it could be both. Let me show you. I think this word end possibly goes... Back to the idea of endurance. Paul prays to this end that you would endure. It could be this here. The end that God may make you worthy of his calling. That's the same word used in verse 5. I think either way, you have this idea of endurance because it's endurance that, watch this, indicates worthiness, ownership, identity. But verse 11 said, it is endurance that produces it as well. Much like James says. The trying of our faith, the testing of our faith, faith it, it works maturity in us. Now let's just pause a little longer and understand what it means to be made worthy. If endurance is doing something in us, as well as indicating how that's going, let's talk about what it is it's producing. The Bible says here it's the word worthy. Enduring difficult things, especially related to our calling and our identity, it indicates who we belong to, but it also it produces something in us, a worthiness for God's kingdom, a worthiness of our calling. What does that mean? The best way to understand the word worthy in the Bible in this verse as well as in Ephesians is to bring up the image of a scale. Can you do that with me? So this middle post, a ball on top, and two things hanging, right? In this culture, when something was worthy, it was balanced. It was fit. It was equal. So let's say David ran a, uh, a Greek shop in the first century. And I as a Jew would go in there and I'd want to sell three pounds of grain that I had gotten from my fields. I would go to David's shop and I would say, I have three pounds of grain. He would bring out a scale. He would put a three pound weight on this side. And then he would put my grain on this side. And he would find out if the grain was worthy of the money equal to three pounds. Does that make sense? If it didn't, if it, if it fell short, he would say, well, your bag of grain's not worthy of the price you're wanting. It would be imbalanced. It would be unequal. So when Paul says in Ephesians, walk worthy of the gospel by which you have been called, he's saying, let your actions balance what you say. In other words, your, your, your walk ought to Equal your what? Talk. So that when we're worthy, the scales balance. God says, wow, you say you're a Christian. I can now see you're a Christian. How? Through endurance. Endurance is that which not only says 
man, we are what we say we are, it's also that which produces in us that which says we are what we are. I mean, enduring difficulties, especially brought about by our calling Christ Lord. Man, God sees that and he uses that not only to make known our identity, but to produce in us that very identity. Endurance is the means to and evidence of being worthy of the kingdom. It's why we say for 12 years now and running since the start of our church, that those who are truly saved will endure to the end. And often you find out those who aren't really born again by what they do over time. John Calvin called this the perseverance of the saints. It's simply saying this. You may not can tell in the first week or month or year. But over time, God's people are truly revealed by how they handle Persecution that comes their way for the sake of the name of Christ. And that very persecution which identifies them is also the very thing God uses to make them fit for the coming kingdom, the coming Christ. I didn't say justified. I didn't say regenerated. But it is what God uses to make us mature. To show that what we're saying and what we're living is equal. Does that help a little bit? Does that make sense? This is what's going on with the idea of being made worthy. So trials and enduring trials that come about for, for, because of our faith, they indicate something, and in one sense, they manufacture something. He says here, this is why he prays, that God would make you worthy of his calling. It may mean this, that Paul is praying that they have difficult times. Imagine that, American church. Paul says, I pray to this end. What is that, Paul? I'm praying that you will endure difficult times. By implication, you're going to need some difficult times to endure. Yeah, I'm praying all that will happen because you know what? At the end, I want you to be shown fit, appropriate, balanced. I want your walk and your talk to equal. I want you there. How do we find that out? Man, hard times, endurance. It's the litmus test. It's also the manufacturing tool. He says that he's praying that this will occur and that God would then fulfill every resolve for good. Circle, that's one thing. And then every work of faith. Can I show you what my opinion on this is? I think these two phrases, you could circle them, kids, if you want, on your handout. I think that they refer back to the two things Paul was thankful for in the first of the, ch of the chapter. I think every resolve for good refers to loving each other in an increasing way. And I think every work of faith by his power refers to growing faith abundantly there in verse 3. Now, I wouldn't die for that or fight you over that. But it seems to be some bookends of this chapter. Paul says, I'm thankful for two things. And by the way, I'm going to pray to this end that those two things keep going. That you have a resolve for good, which has this kind of horizontal, external bent to it. And then also that, you're, that you have this very, um, every work of faith by his power, this internal vertical situation. I think there's possibly they can mean both of those. But even these are done so that the name of the Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him. Interesting. Paul is praying that we endure and that while we're enduring, we love each other and trust God so that the world and others will see that we're in Christ and Christ is in us. Wow. That's an identity issue for people. 
So what does endurance do? It shows who you are, but it also helps in making you who you are. This is why endurance is the evidence spoken of in verse 5. And of course, this is all based on or according to, what's his last phrase? Don't lose me. The grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. None of this is possible if God didn't gift us in the beginning with repentance. Grace. If he didn't come and die in our place as the atonement for our sins, none of this is possible. We could not be God's children or identified as his children or endure as his children if his grace was not first and foremost the foundation of all of our life. So he says at the end, everything I've said to you, man, it's based on, it's according to the grace of our God in Christ. Now, there's a lot of markings, a lot of things you can look at and learn. What are we saying, though? We're saying that being made worthy is really a matter of endurance. Showing equality in your walk and talk, showing that you have a balance in what you believe and how you behave, all of those things are really a matter of endurance. Over time, uh, obeying, not quitting. In fact, I heard a guy say this last year, I like it. He says, what we're after is, is long obedience in the same direction. That's what we're after. Not quick victories or, or huge successes and flashes of lightning, but just long obedience in the same direction. I mean, you get a church pointed that direction, enduring faithfully to the name of Christ no matter what comes, that's a church that will prove to be worthy of the kingdom. I hope that chapter makes some sense. Before I take some questions about the meaning of it, perhaps, let me just see if I can give it to you in a sentence, can we? And I hope the kids, I hope you've watched that. I'm not an expert at it, but I do think it's important to learn how to study your Bible, look for repeated words, repeated phrases, connect things with transition words, and you can gradually understand what the Bible is saying. Here's what I think this chapter is saying to us, the meaning in the sentence. Read with me, would you? We'll leave it up so you write it down, don't worry. But here's the meaning in a sentence together. Evidence, excuse me, <laughs> endurance is strong evidence we have been genuinely outfitted by God to walk the talk as we wait for Jesus to return. So if you want to give this sermon in a word, we would say the first word is it. Endurance. And it's the means to and evidence of being worthy. And it's empowered by the grace of God for sure. But if you were to use a few more words, we just simply say this, that when you endure, and specifically here, trials that come because of your identity in Christ, as you do not shrink back or, or, or go away, but as you kindly and politely stay your ground, man, it's, it's evidence that God has outfitted you that he's working in you to walk the talk. And this is what we'll do as we wait for Jesus to return. We don't expect early vindication. We do expect ultimate relief. And to that, the church said what? Amen. I unashamedly am excited for the day when there will be ultimate relief. Physically, spiritually, all injustice is over. Man, all that's wrong will be made right. All that's old will be new. I look forward to that day. I look around this room at folks who've lost children, who've experienced incredible trials, even those who specifically have suffered for their faith. I imagine you too are longing for the day of ultimate relief when you don't live with this, with this gnawing pain in your soul. 
That day is coming. And until that day, I would say, I want to join Paul in encouraging you to hang on, endure, don't quit. It's the surest sign you belong to the coming king. Let's take a few questions if any came in. Zero questions came in. Then let me give you some application that I think will help you process this, all right? Kids, write this down. I might even give you some chance, some opportunity to talk about it here in the service. We'll see. We're well ahead of time, so that's good. Get you out of here a little earlier today. Don't clap or applause. Um, <laughs> I prefer moans at that point. No, I'm kidding. Okay. Here's six applications that I think we can explore. All of these will probably leave you with questions. They'll make you wonder, is he saying this, or does that mean I should do this? I'll let you wrestle that with the Lord. But I think these are six solid textual applications. Number one, here's the first one. Spiritual growth occurs even in the worst of circumstances. In fact, let me rephrase that. Kids, listen to me very carefully. Your spiritual growth over the next unfolding 20, 30, 50 years, let's say you're a 10-year-old here, 15-year-old, your most potent spiritual growth moments will be when life is the toughest. If you're a kid, look at me. Look at me. Every kid in this room, look at me. Do you hear what I just said? It won't be when you win the state championship, make the team, run the fastest mile, get the best job. Now, can growth occur in those moments? Yes. But notice what I said. The best growth usually occurs in the worst circumstances. So I want to be an honest pastor to you. Your parents will be honest parents to you. Expect difficulty. Why? Because God loves you so much that he doesn't want you to stay immature and stagnant. He desires that you grow. And so he's going to send some difficult things to show and to produce growth. That's a good father. Let's just pause for a moment and talk about how that looks in our home. This is not in my notes. I'm going, I'm flying uh, without radar here. I mean, yeah, whatever they call it, you know. I'm watching my wife like, okay, trust me, we'll get through this, I promise. <laughs> there are times our kids will say, oh, I don't want to do that. Or do we have to? Especially when they were little, you know. And often we would kind of wrap our punishment for things around work. I mean, it produced a lot of growth, you know. We required them to get jobs at certain ages. It was a, it was a mandate in our home. You have to go to work. That's what people do. At a certain age, you become responsible, you go to work. Um, even now, there's sometimes tough conversations about, no, I think you said you would do that, so you're going to do that, and we're going to ask that you fulfill that. And ask, there is a nice word for command, <laughs> right? And do they say, oh, this is awesome. This is so difficult and so tough. I embrace this so gladly. They don't say that. They're like, oh. And so even in that vein in our home, sometimes it's just difficult we know that produces growth. And guess what? In our spiritual home, in our spiritual life, God's a good parent. He, he will hold you to the line of obedience because he knows it's the best way to bring the kind of growth he desires in you. So kids, parents, adults, don't blame God when things get tough. Thank the Lord that he loves you enough to help you grow. Amen? That's hard, I know, but that's just true. This, is, this says it, James says it, Peter says it, we rejoice in our sufferings. 
So just let's understand a principle here, an application. Spiritual growth occurs even in the worst of circumstances. And I think we should probably word this to say spiritual growth, spiritual growth occurs best in the worst of circumstances. We might even just say that. As hard as it is to hear it, it's probably true. Second application. We show we're fit when we don't quit. Could you say it with me? We show we're fit when we don't quit. That's kind of a modern paraphrase of John Calvin's fifth doctrine of grace, the perseverance of the saints, okay? We show we're fit when we don't quit. Endurance is the test of truly belonging to God. Number three, expect eventual relief and ultimate vindication, not immediate escape. I think that's clear and to the point. I don't need to expand on it. I want to say this, though, a little bit of expansion. This is easier, and, and I've traveled a little bit, not a lot, but I've been to uh, the, uh, some other parts of the world where martyrdom and persecution is higher than here currently. And it seems like in those parts of the world, this is an automatic assumption when they get saved. That it's going to be tough. I'm signing up for loss, difficulty, but one day Christ will make it right. And so I live in light of his return. It's only in America and some of our Western societies that we seem to kind of think, okay, so I go to church today, it'll be better tomorrow. <laughs> That's a good equation. I'll sign up for that kind of Christianity, right? Just let the Bible define Christianity. And one of the elements is that eventual relief, ultimate vindication is what we're longing for. Not immediate escape. Fourth application. Praying for God to make others fit is good and right. Whoa, 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 whoa. Back up that wagon, Todd. Are you, are you saying that I should pray for others that God would make them fit? Meaning that if necessary and when appropriate, God send difficult things. Let persecution in the door because it's one of the best ways they grow. That's exactly what I'm saying. I don't think I can be more clear. I think we just need time to process it. Paul says, to this end, I pray for you. What end? That you would endure the difficult things that actually do what you need the most. I think by implication, Paul is saying, we pray for endurance and then we pray for what brings about endurance. Difficult times. In fact, let's see if we can put this to the test. Right now, where you are, I'm going to give you 60 seconds to pray that God would make others in your life fit. So maybe you're sitting with your children, maybe your spouse, or maybe some friends, or maybe you're alone. I want you to think of someone very close to you that you love greatly. And I want you to pray for about 30 seconds, that God would do whatever it would take to make them worthy, to where their talk and their walk match, to where they're balanced, to where they are fit. Would you pray that? I'll give you 30 seconds. Ready, set, pray. You're welcome to talk with your children, your spouse. Go ahead and feel free to pray out loud. I'll be quiet for a little bit.
In Christ's name we pray, amen. What you just did was a very loving thing. It's one of the ways you can help others grow by praying that God would make them fit. Last application. God's grace towards us is the engine that fuels enduring good works from us. I draw this from the very last phrase in this passage in which all of what he says is based on or according to or rooted in the grace of God and Jesus Christ. So church, listen very carefully. What you've heard today is not a call from your pastor to white-knuckle your way through life. It's not a call for you to kind of rev up your engine, the little red choo-choo train inside of you, and say, you know what, man, I got it in me. I can do it. It's a call for you to fall completely on the grace of God so that when or they come in your life, persecution, affliction, because you fall in the grace of God, when that comes, you'll stay in the grace of God the entire time the world's just battering you to pieces. Just stay right there. Because His grace towards us in Christ is really the engine that fuels anything good from us. It is what produces endurance. And it's one of the reasons I think weekly communion is such a beautiful tool in God's repertoire for the church. I think the more we see this table where we come together and identify with Christ, we eat a meal with Him. Is this symbolic? Yes. Is something more happening here than just symbolism? I think yes, personally. I don't believe in transubstantiations or the body becomes the, or that the bread and the wine become the body and blood. I don't believe that. But neither do I believe that it's just some ritual like, oh, you know what, just do it, it doesn't matter. There's something's going on when we gather around the communion table as the Lord commanded. One of the things going on is this. God gives us special extra grace to endure and to stay right where we are in Christ we see the beauty and the treasure of Christ and suddenly what Peter described and what James described what Paul described becomes reality we see that there is joy in suffering we see the benefit of our trials and the treasure and beauty of Jesus far outweighs anything momentarily difficult when will the treasure of Jesus, when will the beauty of Jesus really have its greatest weight upon us? In glory, Paul said in Romans 8. He said at that moment, man, this will surpass every single light momentary affliction. And one of the ways that we lean into that week after week is at the communion table. When we see Christ's suffering and all that it brought to us, all that it enables. And then we again root ourselves in that gospel, that good news, that grace. And we say, Lord, yes, another week. I'll be yours. I'll let others know. It'll be seen. It'll be evidence. It'll be the means by which I'm, that you make me fit. All, of, all that's required of me, I'm in. Because all that's needed for me, you were in for. You did everything. So this morning, can I just ask you, don't leave here thinking, man, I'm going to rev my engine up and crank up, you know, my motor, I'm going to have this down pat. It's not really about anything you can do. You cannot endure apart from Christ. But in Christ, yes, you can make it until 
he comes. So let's come to the table again this week. Let's anchor ourselves and our souls to the beauty and treasure of Jesus' completely satisfactory work. Let's identify with him, and then let's leave committed and resolved to every good work, God being glorified, increasing in our love, and deepening our faith. Let's pray, shall we? Heavenly Father,